Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Hello and welcome to episode 182 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Talia Lakshmi Kaluri. A bit about Talia. Talia Lakshmi Kaluri is a mixed South Asian American writer from Northern California. Her debut collection of short stories, What We Fed to the Manticore from Tin House 2022, is a finalist for the 2023 Carol Shields Prize for Fiction, which she was talking about, which was held last week and was long-listed for the 2023 Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction, the 2023 Aspen Words Literary Prize, and the 2023 Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for Debut Short Story Collection, and was selected as a 2023 ALA-RUSA Notable Book. It's available now wherever books are sold. Her short fiction has been published in the Minnesota Review, Ecotone, uh, Ecotone excuse me, Southern Humanities Review, The Common, One Story, Orion, uh, five Dials and the Adroit Journal. A lifelong Californian, Talia lives in the Central Valley with her husband, a teacher and printmaker, and a very skittish cat named Fig. Good evening. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you including my cat in the bio. That's such a, <laughs> such a key key factor. So I'm looking at the bio. I'm like, okay, do you live in the Central Valley and then from Northern California? So we talk in like the Bay Area. Did you grow up in like the Bay Area? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, technically, we were in the, the city boundaries of the city of San Jose, but I was actually really in oh. Campbell, um, which is oh, uh, my gosh. South Bay, South Bay right here. And um, and I live in Fresno now, which is okay. a wonderful community. Awesome. Awesome. I know I, I very much know Campbell and San Jose and awesome, but an official, you know, welcome. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm really excited to talk with you. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a huge, huge fan of the podcast. And so I'm, uh, this is, this is a very exciting thing for me too. Appreciate that. Tell me, tell me again, uh, refresh my memory, please. Oh, it's okay. So it's through Tin House and you're, you know, you're saying obviously you can buy wherever books are sold. Do you have a favorite bookstore or bookstores like you want to direct people to? Yeah, you know, um, it kind of depends on where you're at. If you have a local independent bookstore available to you, then um, by all means, please do support your local indies. I don't have um, a large indie bookstore scene where I live. So mm. Barnes & Noble is um, a great place to buy your books you too. Um, if you're shopping online, I love it when folks choose um, bookshop.org okay. and then you can select an indie bookstore to send your support to. And please, please, please read it from your public library. I'm a yeah, huge fan and supporter of public libraries and um, it's available on the Libby app for libraries. Mm. And um, you can also get audiobooks through Libby um, and lots of, lots of libraries have this particular book. So, and if they don't have it, you can request that your library order it. So please there you do. Go. Awesome. Um, I'd love to, you know, talk about the beginnings, um, your, you know, your early relationship with the written word, you know, language, reading, were you the type to have books all over the place? Were yeah. you, you talking about the library? I mean, were you like a, a you know, a bookworm? Um, kind of how did that, how did you grow up when, what was the relationship with the written word in your house and just in your life? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm a long time passionate, dedicated reader and, you know, the thing is that um, literacy is like such a gift, you know, having the ability to read, I think is such a, a gift. And and I, and I love having that ability. And mm -hmm. I remember as a very small child, just desperately, desperately wanting to read, like, I wanted to read as early as possible. I just wanted to know what was in books. Mm. Um, and I, I, uh, I actually remember the first time I read a book and I recognized a word and then the significance of the word. Mm. And it was like this exciting moment for me. And, and, you know, probably ever since then, I've been, I'm just been really, really dedicated to, to living inside books. Um, when I was a kid, I, there was a public library across the street from my school and I would go there after school okay. and I would spend, you know, just hours and hours there. 
um, as a child, so I'd do my homework and then I'd have this uninhibited time to just kind of wander through the library and I and I read everything in like the kids section. And then when I worked my way through that, I just started wandering and see what else is out there. And so I ran, like found Ray Bradbury and, mm. you know, history books and things on politics. And so I, I generally was allowed to read without any restriction. And, um, and that was also such a beautiful way to experience a reading life because, um, it just felt like a, a ton of opportunities and mm-hmm. I, I felt liberated to choose what I wanted to read. So it's been a, a books have been consistent companions my whole life. Yes. what that, Those are the days, right? Those are the days <laughs> right? you go after school and you go to the sections and once you've read all those books in the section, you move on. Yeah. I mean, we talking, were you reading like, um, like the communist manifesto at like age 10 or what? <laughs> Funny you should mention that. I actually did find a copy <laughs> of the Communist Manifesto in fifth grade. And I mean, at that age, I probably didn't really fully understand yeah. what it was saying, but it was interesting, right? <laughs> Just let, let the words in. And um and and I and I have to credit the librarians at um it's the Saratoga Public Library uh-huh. in um Saratoga, California, that I have to credit them with being one extraordinarily tolerant um because <laughs> I spent a lot of time there and um, a lot of the kids from my school did and you know they're extraordinarily tolerant and they never got in my way um mm. they never they never stopped me from looking at anything and uh that really nurtured in me um sort of a lifelong curiosity and I think I think that curiosity and joy in reading are kind of the like key roots to writing. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes. I, I I don't know what to say. I think in some ways the, the curiosity has been heightened by all the different tools we have. I don't want to be like the old man yelling at the cloud, you know, <laughs> but just the idea of like curiosity that maybe has been diminished in so many ways. But that's a discussion for a different day. Sure, right? sure. It's a I whole other I, podcast. <laughs> I want to know what the word was. What was the word that you, you the significance, you know? You're yeah, like, it, it was baby. Remember? So it was a Richard Scarry's, like, oh, like yeah. you know, the books, all these little animals, like, doing things. And it was some sort of story about mice. And um, the the word was offset in the text, but it was, in, it was in some sort of color and it was outlined. You know, in my memory, it was a yellow, yellow lettering outlined in black. <laughs> I went and I found the book recently at my sister's Whoa. house and it's a different color. And I don't remember what mm. color it is, but it, it's a word in color and it was outlined in black. So it was very visually offset. And I remember looking at it and knowing what it meant. Uh, I was referring uh, to like no, a no. baby mouse, like a, a anthropomorphized baby mouse. And I just oh, felt no. like, oh. <gasps> I know, I know what this is. Yeah. And it was, it was thrilling. What a memory. How cool it is that? So thrilling. I have, I don't, my arms aren't that long. I have some a little bit outside of my reach from my kids. The the classic one, I forget the name, but the one that has all the cars. Richard yeah, yeah, yeah. Long. Yeah, the, like something about towns and I forget I what think it is. So. There's something right. like that, yeah. Yeah, there's like a cheese car and a pickle yes, car. A cheese and, car. Right? <laughs> Love um, the cheese car. <laughs> so I wonder about um, like, and you know i mean have you always been an animal lover are you an animal lover just kind of assume through the book but i mean i mean that's a fair it's a fair assumption (laughs) i am you know um so yes i am an animal lover and i think it's probably a little bit more than that um i don't know what your childhood was like but i played Mm. a lot of make-believe sure and you know spent at least half of my make-believe time pretending to be an animal and a part part of that is i just have always wanted to know, you know, what is it like? What it what is it like to be a bird? How does it mm. feel to fly? How does mm. how does it feel to swim like a dolphin? All of those um experiential things about animals um feel inaccessible to me and have always felt inaccessible and yet I have never stopped trying to make them accessible for myself. So um, it's, it's partly just a a love and appreciation for the natural world and for animals, but also a deep insatiable Mm. desire to um, share their experience. And as an adult, you know, I can, I can use the powers of the internet to bring (laughs) me all of the, you know, layperson science I want to have a better understanding of, of what, what is that? How, How do mechanics of their bodies work? how can I telegraph my own mind into their lives? Yeah. So it's, um, it's those similar related, but not identical huh. things. I yeah. appreciate that. 
I wonder as you got older, high school into college, I wonder like, did you see yourself, the the big reader, you know, all the different things that make us up, you know, culture and animal lover and book lover and, you know, all those type of things. Did you feel like you saw yourself in what you're reading? And also who were those readers and excuse me, who were those writers and those books and those texts that really inspired you as you got older? Oh gosh, uh, that's a great question. You know, I I I will say that um, I I never really saw my exact experience reflected in literature, and especially well, particularly um, literature based in the United States, American literature. I think that um, you know conversations about representation in books is sort of an ongoing conversation. And I, I come from a mixed background. My dad's side of the family is from South India. My mom's side of the family um, is American of like Eastern and Western European heritage. So like, like English and, and Slovak on my mom's mm -hmm. side. So, okay. so I, I grew up in a like ethnically, racially, culturally mixed household, um, which was not reflected in the literature that was made available to me. Um, so no, I didn't see myself in, in books that I read. Um, I think what that did though, is it meant that almost every, well, pretty much every single book I read as a kid was one in which I had to, um, use a leap of imagination to one kind mm. of experience other lives that were never going to belong to me exactly mm -hmm. and imagine myself um inside those lives and and to also sort of sometimes consciously sometimes subconsciously seek similarities that could make them relatable to me mm. um I, I think that it made me like a from a from an artistic standpoint, kind of an observer because yeah. I'm watching lives that don't reflect my own play mm. out, and um, and also kind of like you know being a mixed person means that I also sometimes just feel like an observer in either of my cultures anyway because I'm never fully inside mm. anything, mm. Um, which means I can I can um, I can participate in both an inside and outside way if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. But I think that that means that I, I, I was, I was drawn to really like broad, um, hmm. like a broad scope of literature. I read a lot of, actually I read a lot of like fantasy and I read a lot of yeah. um, animal books. Like Watership Down is probably one of the most mm. inspiring books to me. Cause again, it's a life outside my own. I am not a rabbit, but yeah, I, sure. I connect, <laughs> connected so much to those things. So, um, you know, books like Watership Down or, uh, Beverly Cleary. It was a little kid. I loved yeah. Beverly Cleary's books. Judy Bloom is a gold standard for mm -hmm. any any adolescent girl. Um, actually, I, I read Judy Bloom probably from like eight to sixteen. Um, right. Lois Lowry, mm -hmm. all the all the classic, oh, yeah. wonderful um, writers for young people. There's a a book that I absolutely loved called Roll of Thunder. Hear my cry. I was just oh, obsessed yeah. with. Oh, just mm -hmm. a, that's a gorgeous Mildred Taylor. Yeah. Well, yes, Mildred Taylor's books gorgeous i read that whole series mm. um madeline lingle all of those wonderful books um that i think um i found things that i could um understand as belonging to me even if i wasn't directly reflected mm. in the literature and um and i think that as an adult what that has meant for me is that i prefer to read really broadly i love um, in the past five or six years i've been um deliberately choosing literature and translation. Okay. Um, Cause I think there's a lot of stuff out there that for a long time, wasn't necessarily available to English language readers. And mm -hmm. um, so I'm looking for things. I'm looking for things to, that are kind of outside my experience. I'm always, I'm always actually trying. I'm always, honestly, I'm always trying to find something outside yeah, my own experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, have you, you know, through, through the literary circles, have you, or previously, I mean, do you know any translators? Do you are you in conversation with translators just about, you know, how interesting their job is and just kind of what they, what they bring to the table? <laughs> oh, that's such a great question. I don't know any translators very well. Um, Jenny Bott is a wonderful champion of, of oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. literature that's translated. B H A T T, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. And um, I know I know her through like she she did a um a profile for my book which was wonderful and i know her through social media and i admire her her both her mission and her work quite mm. a lot she is a translator okay but i have not talked to her about her translation experience and i i am very ex like interested in um 
in that work in the sense that I think that it's, it's also creative because you're taking yeah. something made by someone and then you're, you're shaping something new that effectively conveys their, the spirit of their work, mm. but it's still something new. Right. So, right. Yeah. So as far as the writing side of it, what, what made you, what flipped the switch for you? What was the link between the, the, you know, a huge reader as a kid and, and you now, I mean, where were some of those links about like, Whoa, I can do this. I can, <laughs> write a story like Lois Lowry or totally opposite of Lois Lowry and you know people like it and I I well I mean nobody likes writing right I mean nobody likes it I, no. I do though <laughs> you do nice I do. I, I'm of course kind of kidding but um so yeah I mean what made you say like oh man I like this and I can do this well um you know I think that uh well I'll take the second part of your question first <laughs> which is that um I I never actually am satisfied with what I've written um <laughs> I described it to someone once in an interview as it's sort of like in my mind, I imagine a symphony played by a full orchestra. And the first draft is sort of like that song rendered on a kazoo. Uh -uh. And I'm always trying to move from the kazoo to the symphony and I, and I never reach mm -hmm. it. And so I, I don't know. Uh, I don't have an objective view of my own work. So I don't know that I can say okay. for sure that, ah, yes, I know that I am like satisfied with this and it's, it's getting there, but it's a, it's a, I try to get as close a, of an approximation as possible, but you know, um, I think that writing for me is the natural extension of that make-believe. Mm. And I started writing really young as a kid, I, all the time. And I, it really just felt like a very, um, intuitive continuation of that same sort of mm -hmm. play. Um, I did take some time off, um, I was like a, in college, um, and then I, um, in graduate school, I, I don't have an MFA, but I did go to law school. <laughs> so, um, in, in law school, which is a very depressing experience, that is when I started writing creatively again, I was uh -huh. out of my head. And, um, what I did is I ended up, um, I ended up writing on the, I was on the, the sort of script writing team for our law school musical. So that whoa. kind of reignited. Whoa, whoa, whoa. There's a law school musical. <laughs> There's a law school musical. Yeah. Okay. I was a founding. So uh, I will mention this because we recently, it was the 20th anniversary of our first performance. I was a founding yes. member of the university of Minnesota law schools, theater of the relatively talentless, whoa. which <laughs> the acronym what's is the tort. Acronym? I was going to say, what's the acronym? <laughs> tort. Ah, wow. Um, and it wow. was just this like wonderful experience of like people who wanted to do something creative. And it was, it was just ad hoc and like all students just for like pure fun. And yeah. it was, it was like this really transformative experience for me and it reignited my love for writing. So I spent um, maybe four years in college, not really writing creatively at all. Yeah. And this, you know, this like sort of like humorous parody based creative practice kind of got me thinking creatively again. And then um, when I finished law school, then I started taking my creative writing more seriously. And again, like as an, like as an adult, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to write a bunch of really horrible mm -hmm. short fiction. It's going to just be like terrible, but like you have to get the terrible stuff out yeah. first. And so I spent years, years writing really awful, awful, sad, <laughs> like, stories all populated by humans which i am not good at that <laughs> uh, i'm sure there's not a yes or no to this but i mean it was all worth it though right mm, absolutely absolutely <laughs> what we fed to the manticore is the collection you heard all of the nominations all of the prizes all of the acclaim i had heard all of the great things for some reason i was thinking the manticore was like a dolphin type of thing and of course you know thanks to wikipedia and look you know looking at the myth again i'm like oh yeah yeah that's right that's right you know so i'd heard all the great things and it was even better than i thought it would be um, oh thank you so much eight stories nine stories nine yeah there's nine stories and just like i don't know to me it's like one of one it's so distinctive so original does the book stand on other shoulders i mean is it i mean it's from the narrators the different narrators are animals it's yeah. i mean we'll talk about where the originality comes from but i mean is it 
do you feel like it's on the shoulders of other books or other writers or is it Oh, absolutely. Uh Absolutely. Um, I I mean, I think a writing is a conversation in a lot of ways like that crosses time and space and um, continents. And so I, in a lot of ways, I'm, I think I am, I'm in conversation with the sort of traditional storytelling practices that almost every culture around the world Mm. will engage in. I think the, the comparison that someone made that is accurate, that I I feel very like happy that someone noticed it was the Panchatantra, which is like animal fables, um, sort of ancient Indian stories. Okay. I, what's interesting is I didn't set out to write stories that were responsive to that style, but that Mm. style feels very intuitive to me, like the Mm. sort of, um, living in the fable space without necessarily being overtly a fable. Um, So Yoko Tawada's Memoirs of a Polar Bear was absolutely a book that I thought about as I was writing. Um, Barbara Gowdy's The White Bone, which I read afterwards, but had on my shelf waiting, Mm. waiting for me to read it. Um, So the idea of um, giving voice to animals is, is, is not unique. I'm not the first person to do it. Um, It's just, I think perhaps a little bit less common mm-hmm. right now. I hope it becomes more common. Mm. Um, Watership Down, of course, um, I yeah. would say it was a big inspiration. But the book that I, I want to highlight that I've continually been talking about is actually a nonfiction book, which is Amitav Ghosh's The Great Derangement, which to mm. me was like a call to action in so many ways. Um, and he, he writes... Uh, towards this idea that um, the climate crisis is a pervasive reality of our lives. Um, But there is um, a fair amount of our contemporary fiction that doesn't really acknowledge it as Mm. much as it should, or in sometimes in some cases doesn't acknowledge it at all. And he was saying as sort of the opening thesis of, of the great derangement that you know, we must, we must write about it and and we should not treat it as something that is uncanny or fantastical or mm. unlikely to happen. We should, which we should treat it as it is, which is mm. the reality that we live with. And I had actually started writing the collection already when I, when I read that book and I was not really sure that, that people would be interested in animal narrated stories. And I wasn't sure if, if people would necessarily, um respond but it didn't really matter in Mm. a way because I was just writing them anyway like I was Mm -hmm. as I said earlier I do actually really like writing so (laughs) I was writing for for personal enjoyment in a large part but when I read that book I felt like he was speaking to me and um it felt like um I don't want to say it felt like permission, but in a way it felt like permission. Like mm. it felt like uh, the message I I understood from that book was yeah, this is a valid uh, and useful and important way of telling a story about the world we are collectively experiencing. And I think that um, so it's, that's like such an important component of it to me because I, I, I think that we so often especially when we're inundated with technology and able to separate ourselves physically from natural Mm. spaces, we forget that we are natural creatures and Mm. are part of the environment. And um, I I wanted to just ground readers back to the earth. So great derangement. I'm on, I'm on Amitav Ghosh's shoulders for sure. Okay. Kind of starting at the end, starting your, your acknowledgments, you 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 write about like the tame, like am I tame, am I wild, and that that balance, that back and forth, the the, the more like the spectrum, right? Yeah. Just, you talked earlier about like the idea of being an observer, and obviously that's what makes you a great writer. I mean, there's so many like levels there, layers where it's like you know some of the some of the animal narrators are are observers. I mean, all of them are in some way, some more than others. We're observing. You know, you as the writer, I mean, you don't insert yourself in the story, but I just wonder about the idea of like, um, I guess more about the observer part of it, um, especially because you're not an animal, what it means to observe and is observation action is observation inaction. Is it, is it neither of those two, I guess. Oh, observation can be action, right? So there's, I think there's like a passive, the passive observation where you, where you let like the world wash over you. 
Hmm. and uh, take it in, but don't retain it or let it slip away. And that's one way of being. And sometimes I do that. And I think the other is observation with attention, Hmm. which to me feels more like a deliberate bearing witness. And um, I, I I think that observation, I like it to be active. I like Mm -hmm. it to be, um, tied into considering um why something stands out to me and considering why i feel something is important why is it that i want to pay attention to a particular viewpoint so i think it can be a very active practice yeah well i mean so so many of the stories are about maybe not um prioritize or maybe maybe not uh i guess blatant but definitely there for sure obviously about climate change about disruption of the natural environment you know the old versus new etc like is is this a call to action is this are you you know is this like an activist stance or is oh. it more like <laughs> hey you know yeah no that's a great question i think so i think that speaks to the question of um when a person chooses to make their writing overtly political Mm. and and when they don't and um and my my view is that all writing is political because Mm. um we all exist within systems of power and um sometimes politics is about navigating your place within a system of power Mm. and um i think that um i mean yeah this is you could call this an activist book. You could call it a political book. Um, it's certainly not a benign set of stories. I, sure. I don't, uh, I do have a, um, a point, right. And there's something I want readers to, to glean from it. Um, but I think when we ask the question of like, when is writing identified as political and when it is not, we also have to ask the question of when is it that a person is able to choose to describe their work as apolitical because Mm. I think even when a, when a writer describes their work as apolitical, it probably isn't. Mm. Um, They just may be in a position where they have the ability to describe it that way because it doesn't necessarily feel political to them, but it'll be political to some reader somewhere. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I did make an overt choice. I did. And, uh, and I think that that um, when I was first writing some of the earlier stories in the collection, I I don't know that that was a very popular story choice Mm -hmm. um but i think it's becoming more prevalent now um there are a lot of exciting writers today that are um they're overtly acknowledging like some of the things that they want to cultivate in their work Mm -hmm. and and i i think that's i think that's kind of exciting definitely or it can be can be exciting (laughs) right you um (laughs) sort of depends (laughs) (laughs) Some of, uh, I mean, some of the greatness of the book is that you, I mean, I guess by definition, you do anthropomorphize, I'm excited for myself just being able to pronounce that word, Yeah. but, but like, but not in a cheesy way. It's done so well that it's not, these are not exact carbon copies of human beings. Right. right. So I wonder how you kind of created, how you created characters who are animals, but they're not humans yet. We read them, you know, they talk they communicate, they have feelings, they have, they're not sentient beings, you know? Yeah. So that, that was kind of tricky because I think I'm asking readers to write to accept that. um, I'm asking them to accept that an animal can tell a story, which is the first trust step. That's the first thing I'm asking them to do. Um, And so once they, once they're willing to kind of take that leap with me, that the animal will tell the story. I do feel that I owe the reader, some reality to kind of ground the animal in, in true science. So I did a lot of research in terms of animal behavior, animal perception. Um, for example, in, um, the hunted, the haunted, the hungry team, I made sure that the dog's visual cues were consistent with what colors dogs could actually see. Mm-hmm. Um, for the, um, level of tolerance, I, I did a lot of research to make sure the seasons were consistently and accurately portrayed. So I did a lot of um, layperson's research on mm. animal behavior, animal habitats, um, environments, just to make sure that I was putting something fantastical inside a framework of reality. Mm. And 
Um, so that was part one. Um, and I think that once I developed a foundation of research for animal behavior, that can help develop the personalities because, sure. you know, their senses and how they react to the things around them can help um, shape you know, those behaviors can help shape a character. There's also a lot of me in there. Um, I mm. think every writer to a certain extent will infuse some of their own self into their work. I think that people are less likely to assume that with these stories because they will go, oh, this is a wolf, you know, it's, mm-hmm. but um, a lot of my own, you know, emotions and personal characteristics are, are infused in there too is there any of the toy man in you or vice versa no you know it's interesting <laughs> that's interesting um toy man was actually inspired by um a, a real person i saw a ted talk by this um wonderful um i think he's an engineer in india and he decided to just use his um expertise to make toys out of found objects for mm. kids and then create these workshops so they can make their own toys so oh, cool. that character was inside that particular person actually i think i have his name in the back of my just yeah shout him really out quick. um yeah it's uh let me find the page oh my gosh um yeah arvind gupta and he there's a um, there's a ted talk called turning trash into toys for learning um, it's wonderful and he ta- kind of talks about his practice of um using just discarded items like straws and string and paper clips and things like that to make mm. um kinetic toys toys mm. that can like do really cool things and i thought that that was a really um wonderful i thought that was a wonderful thing definitely yeah. i mean i mean from the very beginning the first story is called the good donkey and you know even at the end you have a like a reference page this you know kind i mean not a lot of fiction books have reference pages right i mean you know these are yeah. most if not all the stories are based on you know real life and maybe some more loosely than others right yeah so, so in, the, in the good donkey we have hafiz am i saying the name mm-hmm. correctly yeah right so he's putting together a zoo and this is in gaza right yeah gaza strip palestine and you know there are obviously you know there are airstrikes that at times take out parts of the zoo um we have, you know, it starts off with the donkey who's telling the, who's telling the story and he's being painted, you know, to look like a zebra. Yeah. And I think if, you know, at first I'm thinking like, you know, it's like a scam artist kind of thing, you know, like the, you know, Hafiz is like a scam artist, but he's, he's doing it to put together a zoo, to put together a zoo where you, we do have a zebra, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, for in a place that's often, um, you know, there's so much collateral damage obviously human yeah. beings, but just the, those things that make people happy zoos and stuff like that. Yeah. Just tell us about the the inspiration, you know, for a zoo in Gaza. And I think it's pretty, pretty much based on real life. Right. Yeah. So I had read an article, I think I found it in the guardian where, and it was very short and it talked about how there was um, a man in Gaza who had a zoo and he was not able to get um, a zebra and kids love zebras. And so he mm-hmm. did, he did paint a donkey. And that just sort of created a question for me, which was, well, what did the donkey think about that? Mm. What, what is, what does that mean for a donkey to be painted as something else? And, you know, that was a very delicate story to write in a lot of ways. Um, I'm writing outside my experience in this one in a, in a mm-hmm. significant way. I don't have a Palestinian background. Um, and I, and it was really important to me when I was writing it, that um i i specifically avoid writing in a way that would suggest i'm trying to speak on behalf of the palestinian mm. experience because i very mm. much am not speaking on behalf of the palestinian experience it's um that is for writers of palestinian heritage to do and there are wonderful wonderful writers that everyone should be reading mm. and um but I, but I wanted to speak to the specific question of what, what would that donkey think about that experience? And then I heard about, I think also found in the Guardian, a similar, um, similarly interesting story where there had been two lions who had been taken from a zoo and one had the tip of her tail cut off and they were retrieved by Hamas and returned to um, mm. where they had been. And that also created a question for me, which is what do the lions think about that? And it made me think about um, what does it mean for a person to, to have significance to an animal? What kind of relationship needs to exist between the human and the animal for that significance to exist? Hmm. How does that happen? Um, 
And so this, for me, the story was an exploration of relationships that have meaning and, and uh, interdependence and um, interdependence in experiences of suffering. And so I tried to write towards a very specific question, hmm. but it, it was inspired by, by true events that I, I heard yeah. about. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, you talk about like the reader has to suspend disbelief or the reader has to believe right away. Like, Hey, these, these are animals and they're talking and they're doing you know kind of human things. And we did. I mean, I did. We you jump right in and it's like you feel for the animals. You you sympathize as much as you can. You empathize. You know, so, you know, the lions sticking together, you know, the story of Jaleel and the two donkeys, the two donkeys who were killed in a strike. And yeah, you know, for all intents, I mean, they were the father, they were the parents, right, of yeah. the protagonist. And just the idea of Hafiz, like, you know, taking care of his best friend, his friends, you know kid so to speak yeah yeah right and then just you know it's the towards the end as as the the losses mount and there you know there are more strikes you know you know it's not a declared war there's part of it there it's just kind of you know there's strikes and who knows when they're coming and there's a description of like something the effect of every missile is shocking at first right and then how the donkey and how others are just if you have to live with it i guess you do right and yeah something lost and there, there's a tragedy there, right? There's a tragedy there that every missile, not not everyone is shocking, as shocking as the first and, and that type of thing. Obviously, it's it's about animals ostensibly, but there's so much to be said there about about loss and how we just move on with our lives and live our lives. Yeah, I mean, the, and at this point, I actually want to suggest a book if I could. Please. Um, one of the books that was really important to me in writing this story is by a Palestinian writer, and it's called The Drone Eats With Me, and it's okay. Diaries from a City Under Fire. The writer's name is Atef Abu Saif. Um, it was, I think there's the 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 distribution in the, um, for English language readers is comma press, but mm. um so that book is a one person's sort of personal diary of living mm. in Gaza during um, a, one of these periods of intense conflict. And I think one of the things that is, I think, an important thing to understand about that particular book is that alongside airstrikes um, is life, right? So mm. um, Saif is going through, he's going shopping, he's having dinner with his family, he's talking to friends, trying to understand you know, the circumstances of their lives and also cooking dinner. Hmm. And I think that um, that was an important book to me, both in understanding some of the context. So I, um, for your listeners, I just encourage people to read it. I always appreciate those recommendations. The title story, first, if not the first line, pretty close, is, quote, they say that life in the Sundarbans. Sunderbuns. Sunderbuns. So, sorry, say it one more time. Sunderbuns. Okay. Revolves around two things, the tide and the tigers. We are not the tide. We are the tigers. And it's kind of reversed towards the end when we talk about the manticore has become the tide. Right. Well, I guess if we are not the tide, it could be anyone else. <laughs> but I, I love to talk you talk about the manticore and it's, you know, it's I think it's Persian origins. Yeah. At least the, the word itself, but um, you know, just kind of what it represents for you and how how much it's mythical and how much it's like carnal physical. Yeah. So it's like kind of a little bit of both. I am I envisioned that story as um what if what do tigers think a cyclone is? Mm. And um like how how would they envision like the force of a of an almost unsurvivable storm that transforms mm. their living space. And I imagined the tigers having a mythology. And the other thing that I thought was kind of um interesting was as I was kind of researching manticores and also tigers in the Sunderbunds, because it's a it's a mangrove forest. So it's mm -hmm. inundated with salt water. And okay. there are a lot of really interesting animals that live in that space. And I was kind of researching the history of tigers in the area and also how the human population integrates into the space as well. There's honey hunting and there's, you know, there are villagers who are also affected by the cyclones that come in and just sort of surge into where they're living and they have to move. And mm. it's very disruptive to everyone. Um, and so I kind of wanted to explore what does a storm mean from a tiger perspective. But as I was researching manticore history, I learned that when 
one person sees an animal and then doesn't have a camera because cameras don't exist and only has their verbal description of the creature, Hmm. the image kind of gets distorted and it could, you know, it could start out as they saw a tiger, but when they relay the story, it becomes more fantastical and more exaggerated. And so there are some sources that suggest that a tiger was the inspiration for manticore and the manticore grew out of this sort of like exaggerated description by i think the person's name was cetius or something like that he was Mm. a greek historian from like prior to pliny the elder which i may not be pronouncing correctly (laughs) but in any case saw a tiger described a tiger and the description just sort of like went haywire and now you have this mythical beast um (laughs) but also uh, it could have come from somewhere else and it could have generated. So the idea that this, this like, you know, this mythical creature is a little, the origin is in question. And there are a couple of different mm. explanations for how the story came about, created this sort of mysterious notion. So then I thought, well, what if, what if that's a real thing? And what if the manticore is what terrorizes this tiger population mm. and then is revealed later to be a storm? Um hmm. The other interesting thing that I learned when I was researching this, and I cannot actually find the source again, I've lost it somehow, mm-hmm. but there was a description of when um, Europeans first came to the Sundarbans and they described there being an infestation of tigers. And I thought that was such a cool image in my mind because we always think of tigers as solitary creatures. And mm. I sometimes wonder, are they solitary because their populations have been decimated? Like sure. what if there was a point where there was an infestation and they're just like tigers everywhere. Mm. So I, I thought of that as, I don't know, that was one of the images that was sort of lurking in the back of my mind mm. as I wrote this. Well, I, I just thought the story was so interesting for like the, you know, there's, the tigers have a community talk about the infestation there's a there's a community there's they have names there's the small one there's notched ear and then you know the manticore really just you know runs through breaks through that so much the the there's a there's a man that the narrator knew wearing the honey mask he's out in the fishing boat or whatever and it becomes very personal when the manticore like cyclone you know (laughs) doing all this destruction Right. And he's like, man, like I, I knew that person and it was, yeah. it was so much for him. So, you know, to me, it was just, I'm going to say it in a more corny way, I guess, than, than you, you know, than you did it with the, the reading, but just, you know, this idea of how much it becomes more personal when you know somebody, when somebody yeah dies or when somebody, when there's a, you know, a huge national disaster. Yeah. Just the idea of like, oh man, like I, I knew this person and, and the the tiger takes it, takes it personally. If, if I can use the word personally with it. Yeah. With sure. Tiger, right. Sure. Someone much watch over the dead is is one of my favorites. Oh, Doc- that's so interesting. I, I've oh, been hearing is. that a lot lately. It is. Is it Dakma? Am I pronouncing that correctly? I think so. That's how I've been okay. pronouncing it is Dakma. But I mean, man, you sent me down the Wikipedia rabbit hole, right? <laughs> this this idea, right, that it's it's basically these these above ground, like not crematorium, but like leaving leaving the body exposed for the vultures for the for the buzzards, yeah. you know, to, to it's get a sky to, right? funeral. Yeah. It's a sky funeral. So what, what, um, how would you describe that? What was, and I'm, this, I'm not going to pronounce the word correctly. You know, the, the, the Iranian religious group, the Zor. Zoroastrianism. Can you talk a little bit about yeah, the, the Zoroastrian about their, faith, about their belief yeah. in, in, in the dogmas and the belief in the sky funerals and, and it can sound very, it sounds very brutal but there's almost a beauty in it, at least, you know, from the side of what the vultures think they're doing, like what the the positive of it is. Yeah. I mean, I think that so sky funerals are incorporated into a couple of different faiths. Um, Buddhism has sky funerals in some places. And um, in in India, there is a Parsi Zoroastrian community. Right. That, right, um, right. Practice the same um funereal practice Mm -hmm. and i I actually think it's really beautiful um i don't want to speak for the faith but i think that it is a beautiful um completion of a circle my understanding is that in the zoroastrian faith fire is holy Mm -hmm. and so um their practice is that they do not cremate but i do think 
there is tremendous beauty in recognizing that um, the death of our bodies can nourish other creatures. Hmm. And um, I think humans, humans are very uncomfortable with death. I think we, we, we are very uncomfortable with it. Um, And we try to avoid it um, to very extreme degrees, particularly in, in Western cultures. I was just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. We're just like, not, we just, we aren't interested in doing it. We want to live forever. Um, I don't personally want to live forever. (laughs) I understand that, um, my life will someday. end. I was thinking a lot about mortality as I wrote this story. And I think that, um, what I think is just a tremendously moving and beautiful part of the idea of the sky funeral is the recognition that the body, um, is the vessel for the soul and the Mm. body sometimes dies. Actually, the Mm. body will always die. Eventually the body always dies and the body can be a gift to another creature and Mm. it can, it can feed life. And, um, I also think vultures are very cool. I think they're really, <laughs> really neat animals and they they perform such a beautiful part of service to the ecosystem that's very necessary. And I just wanted, um, I know that in the faiths that practice a sky funeral that has meaning for those communities. And I wanted to imagine what it would be like if on the side of the vulture, it held meaning as well. Mm. And um Again, in writing, specifically writing outside my experience, I that's such a delicate practice. Um, mm. Most writers will tell you, you can write about whatever you want as long as you don't mess it up. Um, <laughs> and so I, um, I, I want very much to be sensitive to the religious practices of the Zoroastrian faith um, while also exploring what it means to have meaning on the other side of that mm. equation. Yeah, I, I just started reading the book uh, four or five days ago and I was watching one of those National Geographic things with my mother-in-law and I was I was like, well, maybe I was thinking differently of of it having read, you know, having read the book. Yeah. And, and there was a there was a vulture that was just like chilling and it just walked right by the like a hyena, I guess. It was kind of like, you know, the vulture was waiting for the hyena to basically be killed by the lions. Yeah. And it was just so <laughs> I was just so like jarring to me. It's just like, you know, as much as a vulture can walk it was kind of you know whatever stuff yeah they along, do kind of walk right right but it was like it was so crazy to me it was like the vulture just kind of walked by the hyena and neither of them made a move and i'm just like wow he's going to be probably eating the remains of the hyena in like 10 yeah minutes, right yeah that's not exactly the cycle of life i don't think but it's so what uh, did the hyena like what does the hyena think about that i don't know right. i don't know but i'm curious right um it must oh. mean something for all of them it, they must have thoughts and feelings about it mm-hmm um, yeah, I, I was, I was, um, you know, that, so the, the narrator takes part in the eating of the Saiga, Saiga yeah. antelope, right? Yeah. And just really interesting in, in like, basically like, I don't know, getting to the marrow and really like feeling those animals lives, like what they've gone through, really experiencing it. Yeah. Right. And I just thought that was so interesting, but yeah, I just wonder about the idea of like being connected to the earth in in eating the antelope I, sorry that's what i was thinking of like you know <laughs> it's a weird story i totally right? i know that i went a little weird there no i, I love it <laughs> when, when people talk about being vegetarians i i don't have a good reason to be a carnivore or whatever i am a non-vegetarian right i don't feel like i logically have a good reason they make great points right there's this this idea that like what we we see animals we okay we see it as like maybe it's just a justification right we're like okay we're like the the apex predator or whatever right and we need to eat to to maintain ourselves right and mm-hmm. so with the thing with the antelope it just made me think of it the other way around like the, how much the animals need to eat we see yeah. like that brutality and them just you know dripping blood from their teeth and whatever it's like right right it's just kind of that opposite of like yes they need to eat as well to maintain and I, maybe i'm making an obvious sure. point but it was just so it was so visceral in the way you wrote about it I mean, it, the the thing is, is that what a vulture does from the outside, it's gory, right? Mm-hmm. They, Big I time. mean, and it, and and their and their bodies are built to adapt to that because they don't have like feathers on their heads because they mm-hmm. get you know, sort of viscera and blood mm-hmm. and all this stuff on them as they eat. And I mm-hmm. think that um, it's a real like embodied experience. So you can't. Um, 
it's it's an it's a non-sterile experience. I think when humans <laughs> eat meat, this yes. is just you know, oh, it's like time. doesn't look like the animal chicken nuggets mm. in the shape of dinosaurs and all these things, which <laughs> are fun, right? They're mm-hmm. kids love them, and it's mm-hmm. all the I understand all of those things, but there's this very significant distance I think between yes. what we consume and then what it was um, before we consumed it, and then that's true actually of plants also, right? So like, mm, oh yeah, you know, there's um. Ooh, don't let there be a brown spot on my banana, right? <laughs> but I mean, like, you know, we yeah, we want this like very sterile kind of experience of our food um, where, I mean, whether or not a person is a vegetarian or not, um, everything we eat was at one point alive, whether it's a plant or an animal or something that there's, we are living and we are sustained by other living things. And so this story really does kind of get to like the... Um, the messy part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wanted to infuse some beauty in that too. So I didn't really shy away from the gore. I let it, I let it come in. Definitely. One of the the following stories is may God forever bless the rhino keepers. And we have the, the hound, the hound is the narrator, you know, capital I's capital H and Joseph is like the, the guy, what would you call me? Works for the conservancy. Yeah, he's like a rhino guard. Yes, yes. And there's it's so beautiful. It's so effect, you know, he's affectionate. He basically like he'll come and like kiss the hound, right? Like like lips up against the cheeks, lip up the forehead, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's very um very reassuring for the hound. And and so we have Zuri and we have Zawadi. My my daughter has a friend named Zawadi. I know the name means gift. Yeah. Which I thought was so beautiful, right? That Zawadi is the gift, is the daughter of Zuri. These are mm-hmm. hippos or rhinoceros? Rhinos, yeah. Rhinos, right? And we have the stranger. A lot of capital capital letters here. The stranger, the S is capitalized, right? And mm-hmm. I think it's like, maybe mixing up with another st- later story, you have like the machine, you know, <laughs> the car and the hunters, right? Very yeah. much to know that this is a very, this is a specific person, but also I think representative of, you know, a bigger group, right? Yeah. But anyways, there's there's that tenseness that comes and the maternal pull on the narrator, right? When sorry to spoil a little bit, right? So when Zuri okay. <laughs> when, when Zuri is motherless. Yeah. And that brings out in the hound, that brings out like, you know, I think at one point almost cries out to mom, you know, yeah. right? And just this idea of like there was such a beauty and such a sadness, such a point poignance, poignancy. And basically the hound is saying like Oh man, like she's gonna have to Zawadi's gonna have to narrate or excuse me, navigate this motherless life. And they cry yeah. together. They cry together. And uh, that was, was beautiful. Oh, thank you. I wonder what um what this you think you know what the story says about about the maternal pull, about you know, navigating worlds as hard as it you know, it's hard enough with a mother and hard enough with a father and just kind of about navigating the world, I guess. Yeah, it's I mean it's partly about loneliness and mm-hmm. um, caretaking and like who nurtures who and um, when do you have a duty to nurture and mm. what happens when all this falls apart? Um, loss. Yeah. I wanted to kind of, I, I in this story, I really wanted to explore the emotional um, texture of those feelings. Mm. And I wanted to, um, find a way to articulate them for myself and sure. uh, give voice to, to all the complexities that come with um, loss. Yeah, really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was like I said, that you know, the, the kiss on the forehead, he does one again towards the end and the crying together and, you know, the hound being older, but like saying like, Oh man, like Zawadi, I can kind of, I can see your future in many ways. Yeah. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to navigate this. Um, but there is a, I'm not gonna say a positive ending, but there's a a beauty, a collective, a collectiveness, a community that's gonna hopefully get Zawadi, you know, through it. That's not the word even. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you, you don't get through it, but <laughs> the second to last story is called a level of tolerance. I will not ruin that last page, the last page that I took a few pictures of that I have in my phone. That that last page. Well, for me, it's yeah. I, I'm sure you can picture it, the last page and yeah. the very you know, there's maybe six or seven paragraphs and they're mostly one line each. And that is just uh, absolutely ruining, ruined me, <laughs> ruined me so in the sorry. best, in the best possible way, in the best possible way. But the story starts off and I don't know, three or four parts, at least it's on the last day of my life. 
And it's this idea of, you know, on loop. I hate to make mm -hmm. the cheesy comparison again to the connection, but to probably Groundhog Day, maybe. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was one of the only people who just hated that movie so much. Did you? <laughs> people talk about it like it was, you know, like nostalgic and loved. I Ned hated Ryerson. it so much. It has literally, right. It's literally been probably 25, 30 years since that. But anyway, <laughs> but just this idea of uncountable variations on loop. Um, the narrator is looking for his brother. Yeah. And thinks he's found him and he thinks he smells him and, you know, um, there's this beautiful kind of not an idea of a literal reincarnation, but like his son, the narrator's son, this narrator's pup, it's almost like he is the brother. They're so similar. Yeah. They would ask, they would show their curiosity together and they'd ask and answer questions for each other. Um, you know, like I said, like a, not like a literal cycle, but that I wonder about, um, I wonder about the title, a level of tolerance. This is again, a, a narrator looking for his brother um and i just wonder what 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 the tolerance is who's tolerating what oh this is the hardest title to write for me <laughs> i struggled so much with this one so i um i was inspired by a real wolf um several years ago this really famous wolf in yellowstone was um shot and so she was in a she was in Yellowstone National Park and then she like crossed right outside the park boundary and was shot right outside, right outside oh the boundary. Oh my God. And, and, and she was famous. She was this famous wolf. People would travel like to Yellowstone from all over to, to Yellowstone to photograph mm. her. Like, and she was just this what like beloved. What years are we talking with this one? Um, I, it, it was probably 2000. 12 or 13, maybe okay. something yeah, like yeah. that. Um, but she was born in 06. And okay. so she had two names, 06 female or 832F. Those were like the two ways of identifying mm. her. And she was like, like beloved in the wolf community. She's a very like, you know, successful hunter. Normally wolves hunt in packs and she was mm -hmm. apparently able to hunt alone. Mm. So she was like very like, as wolves go, like very cool. She's, so hot. Um, She's like Hansel from uh, Zoolander, right? She's yes, so hot right Hansel, now. so hot right now. <laughs> um, but she was shot, and it was it just mm. her death just reverberated, and she had an obituary in the New York Times. Oh my god! And Outside Magazine, and I remember I found that obituary like maybe a day or two after it was written, and I was I was at work, and I'm sitting in my office reading it, just bawling. I was mm. just so upset because I thought about how arbitrary park boundaries are yeah and how we create these like false spaces we say okay well on this side of the line the wolves are safe mm. and on that side of the line the wolves are unsafe we don't pay attention at all to what their behavioral range is we don't right, care right, right, right. and we don't even make any attempt to even think about trying to communicate the way a wolf would understand that they should not cross a line. Like we don't put sense on trees. Mm. We just draw a line on a map and say, if the wolf is over here, you can kill the wolf. If the wolf sure. is over here, you can't. Um, and so I, I just hated, I hated the idea that she had no control over her own safety whatsoever. Mm. And so I, I wanted to just, I wanted to explore, um, reimagining that story from her perspective mm -hmm. but i really struggled with the title and so i think when i was writing the draft i just called it 832 f and um mm -hmm. most of my reading partners were like that title does not work you need something else mm -hmm. so i started researching this like practice of governments regulating what they call wolf culling which is when they allow um permitted hunting of wolves and the perception the perception is i'm not this is not actually my opinion but the mm. perception is that if wolf populations are kept below a certain number then that is somehow preferable um is there like and, an optimum number i guess well <laughs> apparent well it's, it's it's arbitrary i guess so. it is yeah i mean i don't i don't know what the i don't know i think you know, I think that there a number is selected, mm -hmm. and I don't know how the number is selected, but whatever whatever that is, um, the the literature that I read said something about bringing the wolves population to a level of tolerance, which I think means the level that human beings are willing to tolerate. Sure. Um, okay. Okay. And so that so I took that line and I and it's very I, jargony, right? Yeah, I was sort of like speaking to that Formal. like 
to that formal conversation about when we hunt wolves and when we don't. And, um, and I, and I, and I honestly, I'm not entirely sure if I'm satisfied with that title, <laughs> but that was sort of the best I could do. <laughs> well, for the, uh, you know, the 10 year anniversary or something like that, you can change it. Maybe who knows? Right? It's, it's, maybe I'll come up with something better. It was, that was a challenging story to title it. it the mm. story came very easily. It just like, yeah. it just like came and it, the story just wrote itself in a lot of ways, but the title, Oh man, the title is still, still fighting me. I think mm. the, the last story is called let your body meet the ground. There's, there's the, the kite festival. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it reminded me a lot of the kite runner, the little I learned of kites and the, the idea, you know, the glass and glass the, on the string, yeah. right. And the ways that it's, it's cutting and that you do the little moves and cut things down. Um, Kabutar literally means pigeon. Yeah. Kabutar is the kabutar. word for pigeon in Hindi. So, right. yeah. I don't want to give away this story, nor so many of the other ones, but I just, um, I love, 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 love that that day or half a day, that journey with the toy man that the oh, pigeon I'm makes, so right? Glad. <laughs> um, and you know, you know, he it's totally against the rules, right? Right. Um, it in a weird way it reminded me, I don't know, I think it's kind of an obscure story, but uh Truman Capote has a Christmas memory. Yeah, yeah. You know that story? I love that story. I love that story. And I just yeah. I love the woman in the story. I don't think she's even given a name. Yeah, she's, she's like a right? cousin of some kind. Yeah. And you know, she's just so against the rules, but she has such a good heart. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the that's toy a man, beautiful story. Right. And you know, the toy man doesn't do anything, you know. I mean, he's not like a huge rebel, I guess, but you know, he goes against what the doc what Dr. Shaw would have would have liked and did like. But I just I was just thinking of that and just like how he truly had such a great heart. And he's kind of like, you know, I'm gonna break the rules a little bit and just trying to pump up. And trying to pump up the pigeon in that way um <laughs> right yeah right he's the hype man <laughs> he's the hype man that's exactly what it is the hall of mirrors the room of mirrors and all that was i love was that so you cool. mentioned a christmas memory that's actually one of my favorite capote stories I, I love it there's i'm gonna make another kind of random connection but i've gotten to know luis rodriguez you know oh. the the poet the always running and he has this poem called ugh I'm gonna forget it, but it's about his really like quirky eccentric aunt. Oh, it's called it's called yeah. Tia, it's called Tia Chucha, which is the name of yeah. his of his bookstore. And I just oh, nice. again, I love it because I just love these you know people who are just so eccentric and and off whimsical, the, whimsical, right? Yeah. And that's really what it was with that with that journey with the toy man. Oh, I'm so <laughs> glad awesome. that awesome. came across that way. I bet you had it's so great to hear you have fun with writing. I bet you had heck, you know heck of a lot of fun. Wait. Northern California, we can say a hella fun, right? Yeah, I can say you can say hella fun. fun. Yeah, hella. That's what we, that's yeah. what we say in Northern California. Yeah. When I was a kid, I wasn't sure if that was a bad word. So I'd say hecka. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the same thing. <laughs> that's hecka tired, right? <laughs> uh, but you had so much fun with it, and you know, I don't know if fun fun is one of many words to describe the reading experience. It's there's obviously some really deep topics, deep issues, um, some sadness for sure, but just like a whimsical read. Like, I mean, look at the dang cover. Oh, I'm so fortunate to have such right. a beautiful cover. I yeah, color and colors and just oh man, and an incredible book. And it's like man, this is this is an instant classic. This came out in 2022, and it's already getting all these kinds of awards. I'm sure many more to come. Thank you long, so much. Long story short, congratulations and and thanks thank so much you. for talking talking with us about this. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you, and uh, thank you for such generous generous questions and for giving me the chance to share all my favorite vulture features (laughs) (laughs) you you can plead the fifth if you like i wonder if uh, you want to talk about any future projects you got coming up oh sure yeah i mean i can talk in generalities i'm working on a novel every writer's got a novel somewhere in there (laughs) and i've been working on it for a few years and um i'm still writing the first draft i i tend to write a little on the slower side. So um, I'm writing the first draft right now and then hopefully returning to it soon. But I'm still writing about animals and I'm at this point, I'm interested in kind of exploring questions about um, animals in captivity, Mm. animals not in captivity, Mm -hmm. kind of exploring some of those concepts. Very cool. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm, uh, looking forward to listening to all of your future episodes. I appreciate that so much. Thank you all for listening to episode 182 with Talia Lakshmi Kaluri. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave a five-star review, please. You can ask for it by name using Alexa. 
Find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills, excuse me, at Chills at Will PO1, the digit one. You can watch this and other episodes on the Chills at Will Podcast channel on YouTube. Sign up now for the Chills at Will Podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. Talia, I'm so bad at this. Can you let us know uh, any social media, any ways to contact you? Are you extremely yeah. online? I'm <laughs> I'm still on Twitter um, for yeah. now. Um, right. At Talia Kaluri. I'm also on Instagram, at Talia Kaluri. So you can find me those two spaces and whatever the next next platform is it'll be the it'll be yeah, the same one yeah thank you the intro song for the chills of world podcast is wind down and the other song played on the episode is hoops instrumental by matt Whitehour. both songs are used through archesaudio.com please tune in for episode 183 with eli cranor whose critically acclaimed debut novel don't know tough won the peter lovacy first crime novel contest and was named one of the best books of the year by usa today one of the best crime novels of 2022 by the new york times now he's back with a book that came out April 4th. The highly acclaimed Ozark Dogs is will be the main thrust of our conversation. And this episode airs May 16th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Talia Lakshmi Kaluri, whose work, like what we fed to the manticore, gives you chills at will. Will.